Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion, and I'm your host. I'm joined by Ufahamu Africa's research and production assistant, Rory Moomin. Hi. Hi. So let's start with what we're reading and learning from the continent this week. Is there any news that you found interesting? As always, the economic community of the West African states, also known as ECOWAS, has accepted Morocco's application to join the union, but there's still some issues that they have to sort out before Morocco can formally be in addition to the group. Um, Morocco officially rejoined the African Union as of this January. Right. And, yeah, and King Mohammed has started has said that he wants to strengthen Morocco's ties with the rest of the continent. I find the ECOWAS thing kind of interesting because it really extends what we know to be West Africa. Yeah. I mean, Morocco is technically on the western side of the continent, but it's quite far from we the We think other. of it as North, North right, Africa. Right, right. And it's skipping Mauritania and some other places that are not an ECOWAS. But, uh, but yeah, that is exciting. Also exciting this week, I read a new film review at Africa as a Country by Sisonke Msimang, who wrote on the documentary Winnie, which uh, she writes quote, provides an in-depth look at the life and times of Winnie Mandela, largely in her own words and in the words of people with tremendous respect for her, end quote. I'm excited to see the film just based on the title of Umsi Mang's review, Winnie, A Portrait of South African Masculinity and Its Discontents, uh, which is pretty great, by the way, and she brings plenty of receipts. It's, it's, a, it's a great review. And in the conclusion, Umsi Mang writes, quote, the film calls out patriarchy and reminds us that our mothers have been fighting this war for a long time, end quote. For those of you in Western Massachusetts, we are going to be screening the film here at Smith College in early 2018, and as we get closer to the date, we'll invite our listeners to join us for that screening, so keep tuned in to that. Anything else you found online? Yeah, actually, the, on um, a more sad note, unfortunately, uh, Czech Teote, an Ivory Coast-born soccer player, just passed away after collapsing during his training in China. Teote was just 30 years old, and he was a former member of the Ivorian team that won the African Cup of Nations in 2015. Right, and he had played in Europe before he played in China, I remember. And, um, well, our condolences go out to the to the Teote family. What a terrible loss for someone who still had many more years in him to play yeah. and, and to live and watch his children grow up, and that's, that's really quite sad. Um, right, so now that we're all quite sad, uh, maybe a little pick-me-up. There was a pretty heartwarming story in NPR this week, and I have to admit I'm probably biased, but graduation season is one of my favorites, mostly because I love to hear the stories of people who have come a far distance to earn their degrees. The NPR story I read was titled, My Improbable Graduation from a Tiny Village in Ghana to Johns Hopkins. It featured the story of George Munyah, whose mother sacrificed so much to cobble together enough money to send George to school. While he excelled academically, he was unable to attend university in Ghana. Undeterred, he continued to work hard and seek options beyond Ghana. After marrying an American he met that was a Peace Corps volunteer, he moved to the United States and took night courses at a community college while he worked as a janitor in a local school. He continued his hard work and dedication, and this month he graduated from Johns Hopkins University, where next year he'll begin graduate coursework to earn his master's in public health. I have to say, I love stories like this. Yeah, it really is heartwarming. So congratulations to George Munyah. Congratulations to his mother, who, who gave so much for this to eventually happen for him. Yeah. 
Check out our website, ufahamuafrica.com, on Monday morning when we'll post links to these pieces we've mentioned as well as bonus links to other things we found interesting. In this week's episode, we speak with Dr. John Ernie Flessner, an assistant professor of history at Michigan State University. John received his BA in history from Grinnell College and later earned a PhD in African and world history from Washington University in St. Louis. His research focuses on youth, nationalism, and the 1960s in Lesotho, a small landlocked country in Southern Africa. We talked this week about the Lesotho elections, which were held on June 3rd. So welcome, John, to Ufahamu Africa. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Kim. I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about your background, so um, in particular about your early teaching experience. Before you received your PhD, you taught high school in Lesotho and in the U.S. in Alaska. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you taught, and can you share some of the similarities and differences you saw between the learning environment in Lesotho and here in the U.S.? Sure. Um, I, I came out of undergraduate actually planning to, to make a career of being a high school teacher. I did in secondary education license as, as well as a history undergraduate degree at Grinnell College. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate enough that Grinnell had a program where they sent recent graduates down to Lesotho to teach at an all-girls Catholic high school in the rural Masera district called St. Rodrigue. Um, and so I spent my first year after undergraduate in rural Lesotho teaching English, maths, and chemistry. Um, I was really, really glad that I had a liberal arts education uh, because <laughs> my, my, just being a history major would not have adequately prepared me for that. What I found while, while being there was that the students in Lesotho were really eager for an education. Um, the girls at the school, about half lived at a hostel and about half walked in from the local villages. Um, and many were walking up to an hour to get to and from school daily. And all students were scraping together money from multiple sources to, to have access to an education. It was very different for me to teach in a, in a pyramidal system that, that mm. winnows out students mm. coming from the United States where we focus on making sure that as many students as possible are making it through. That was that was a big change for me. But I found that I really loved it. I ended up teaching chemistry at the highest levels, and so I taught the juniors and the seniors. And I also taught English at the lowest levels. It was a, it was a really great experience. I made a lot of great friends. Uh, when I came back to the U.S., I found a teaching job in the Yubik Eskimo village of Quishluk, Alaska, which is about 400 miles west of Anchorage in the Kuskokwim River Delta. And it was, again, a fantastic experience. It was a fly-in, fly-out village. It was a K-12 school of about 200 students. And again, the liberal arts education paid off as I taught English, I taught math, I taught all the social studies courses and even physical education. In both places, um, the the schools struggle with the, with the cultural relevance of education, uh-huh. largely, largely because of the legacy of settler colonialism. Um, so, so students in, in rural Lesotho are working out of a, a locally run but still a British-modeled education system that, that takes many of its cues in terms of curriculum and testing from, from the UK and from the Cambridge model. In the US, the, the students I taught in the Eskimo village, much of the curriculum didn't reflect their lived experience. Um, mm-hmm. For instance, teaching math, trying to explain what a plane was and uh, the example in the textbook was of a parking lot. Well, when you're in a village that doesn't have roads that connect to anywhere else, students aren't necessarily familiar with a parking lot. Right. Uh, so, so basic things like that. So did you have an interest in studying Lesotho before you had lived there? Was it 
your decision to become an expert on political history in Lesotho, something that was born out of that experience teaching there? It was completely born out of the experience of, of teaching there. I was curious about going to Lesotho, and I found that I just loved it there. Like I said, I made lots of good friends. And what I, what I really found intriguing about the country was that despite the poverty, despite the fact that many people had serious complaints about the government, everyone loved Lesotho. And mm -hmm. when I mastered the, the rudimentary greetings in Sasotho, and then later on in graduate school, became more fluent in, in the local language, Sasotho, everyone's face just lit up. Um, the fact that someone would come from America and take the time to, to learn Sasotho and, and to ask people about cultural traditions, about their own history. There's, there's a deep-seated love of the idea of Lesotho amongst the population. And that contrast between the, the deep-seated love and the, and the pessimism towards, towards the government of the day that continues um, is, is really what, what has intrigued me so much about, about Lesotho. John, one of the reasons why we wanted to speak to you this week was actually about that, right? We're interested in learning more about the Lesotho elections that just happened. And you recently wrote an op-ed in the Daily Maverick entitled, Lesotho Elections, Maturing Democracy or a Failure of Institutions? Now that piece that you wrote gives people some background on the contemporary political history in Lesotho. Can you recap for our listeners the main takeaways from that piece? Sure, there's, there's a couple of main takeaways. First, uh, the era of coalition government in, in Lesotho is relatively new. The first, the first ever coalition came to power in 2012, um, and the second came to power in 2015. The third will be coming to power shortly after the agreements are, are signed following this, this latest election. Um, so this was the third general election in five years. The problem with that is that a parliamentary term in Lesotho is supposed to be five years. So the coalitions that have been formed have been unstable uh, because they've had to involve a lot of parties, uh, many of which are, are only loosely aligned. Um, the, the instability is also reflected in the influence of the security forces in, in politics. There mm -hmm. have been multiple politicians fleeing across the border to, to South Africa after, after security threats. Um, in, in recent years. I also argue that the increasing age of the leadership of parties and the lack of mechanisms for secession or transition makes splitting away from the party an attractive option for, for younger, more ambitious leaders. So for instance, in these most recent elections, we saw the rise of two major new parties, and, and those were both led by, by younger, charismatic leaders splitting away from the older parties. Finally, the proportional representation system that Lesotho employs for elections rewards parties that can scrape together a decent base of support, not even very large. All it takes is about 25 to 30,000 voters total to get a good number of proportional representation seats. So there's real incentive built into the system to split if you are young, ambitious, and popular, and your way to the top in your own party is, is blocked. All of these sort of structural constraints, it's going to be very hard for the new coalition government to, to survive five years as well. They might. I'm eternally optimistic uh, <laughs> and hope that cobble together a governing coalition that, that lasts this time. Whether they do or not, uh, Basutu are resilient. They have been living with, with governments that they have not particularly liked or trusted for, for many years now, stretching back to the authoritarian rules of Prime Minister Leo Bua Jonathan in the 70s and 80s, um, and then military government in the late 80s and early 90s. There's still, as I was talking about earlier, a deep-seated optimism and hope amongst many uh, in the idea of a successful Lesotho, despite all the failures since independence, um, especially in terms of economic development. 
Um, and if you're interested in reading more about this, my book is coming out in early 2018, and it, uh, it tackles a lot of the historical background of a lot of these issues. It's called The Desire for Development. That's really exciting. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Hopefully we can have you on again after the book comes out. That would be fabulous. I would love that. So I want, I want to talk more about this optimism that you think um, you know, that citizens have about the future, because in your op-ed you wrote, quote, most Basutu voters do not believe that politics at the national level will solve their everyday problems, end quote. What I'd like to hear more about is, you know, why is that? Why don't they believe that politics at the national level will solve their everyday problems? But also, where are they getting their optimism from if it's not from national level politics? There's two parts there. Uh, the first part is why why do Basutu not really trust national level politicians? One is what I've just been detailing about right. the electoral system and, right. and the fact that it rewards splitting and schisms and, and these sorts of things. Um, and so a lot of people see national level politicians as high level political maneuverers, if that's a word. Right. Um, spending more time worrying about building their next coalition than, than governing. Right. There's also real pessimism about the security forces and the fact that security forces operate seemingly not necessarily under the control of the civilian government and are a behind-the-scenes power broker. This is the view of, of many people, and there's no clear path forward to, to solve that problem. This, this was the problem with both of the coalition governments was, was dealing with security forces. There have been static commissions that have come in to try to ease some of the tensions and, and institute reforms, and there hasn't been a lot of progress on that. So people are fairly pessimistic that even if what they considered a good government came to power, that it could operate in the way it should because of they would be worried about security force meddling. Finally, there's the perception that people in government have long been personally benefiting from their ministerial positions mm. in terms of skimming off the top of government tenders or getting kickbacks from, from companies. While there haven't been a lot of proven cases of that, people see charges of corruption being used as a political cudgel by, by one party or another versus their opponents of the moment, with charges being dropped if coalitions happen to shift, uh, for instance. So there's a lot of cynicism towards uh, charges of political corruption. People think that it's widespread, um, but there are rarely convictions for it because of political necessities on, on all sides. Um, so where do people get their hope? If you look at the Afrobarometer data on Lesotho, uh, it's, it's mostly in local institutions. Mm -hmm. So local government is seen as very responsive. Uh, people are, are perhaps somewhat surprisingly high on the institution of, of local chiefs. Um, it's still a still a strong institution in in the country, uh, despite uh, the fact that it's not particularly democratic as an institution. That doesn't seem to bother people. Um, they many people have have widespread respect for the ability of chiefs to settle local level disputes, uh, but I think that they don't see a way for that sort of system to scale up on the national level. So I think that that um, is is the root of some of this. What, what seems like uh, potentially cognitive dissonance, which right. I don't think is um, the, the optimism laced with the pessimism. So I wonder if we can 
continue this conversation about Basutu voters, can you say more about the everyday problems that they would want addressed by a national government if it weren't so busy working on coalitions as opposed to governing? What sure. and, and also, what resources might you recommend for our listeners who want to learn more about the priorities of Lesotho citizens? Well, first, the Afrobarometer data is really, really strong. Um, it's, it's amazingly detailed. Um, I would I would recommend going to to check that out if you are if you are interested. Uh, they do incredibly detailed surveys with large numbers of of Basutu voters uh, run by locals. So the the data there is is really, really strong. Um, in terms of what what Basutu want to see addressed, uh, first and foremost, it's the economic conditions in the country. There's always been a strong popular clamor for more paying jobs in Lesotho. The unemployment mm-hmm. rates are very, very high. Employment in the in the formal sector is, is incredibly limited in Lesotho. Government is the number one employer in terms of the civil service. Um, and number two is the textile industry, which are seen as not the greatest paying jobs, but relatively stable and and decent um, people people are have been for decades and are still clamoring for for more and better jobs and more economic opportunity within Lesotho other big issues um, include the border with South Africa mm-hmm. with so many people going back and forth uh, for work for for medical care for visiting family for shopping the border is in a word, terrible. It's hard to get across. It's slow on both sides. Uh, there's been recent arrests of, of border guards for demanding bribes on the South African side. Um, and it's hard for Basutu to access passports, even. Um, the passport office in Lesotho has been notoriously slow um, in a place where, again, the perception that you need to be paying people extra in order to get access to your passport um, is, is strong. Right. Uh, and there was a scandal a few years back with the awarding of a tender to an Israeli firm uh, that was supposed to be tasked with with issuing passports and identity documents. Um, and so it's hard to get identity documents. And then South Africa often doesn't want Basutu because they have a history of overstaying mm. um, South Africa, um, both for work and for, for family. Um, so the border is another issue. Finally, more and, and better services in Lesotho. Um, the most emotive issues perhaps water, because so much government revenue in Lesotho comes from the Lesotho Highlands Water Project, where Lesotho ships water to South Africa and receives lots of money for it. There are many, many communities that lack access to reliable water sources in Lesotho. And so there is mounting popular anger that Lesotho's water feeds South Africa, but Lesotho residents don't have access to that. So those, I would say, are the three biggest issues that people would like to to see resolved. Um, More social services as well, not just water, but also a a government seen as governing instead of maneuvering or infighting and and calm on the security front so that people aren't worried about and caught up in in high-level political violence when they're in in Maseru. Right, and how well do you think the election outcome has represented those interests of the citizens? Well, it's it's brought about a change. Um, the election featured two ex-prime ministers uh, running against each other um, at the at the top of the ticket. The Prime Minister Pakadita Mosasidi of the Democratic Congress um, has lost the election. Albasutu Convention leader Tom Tabani is going to form a new government. He's at the head of a four-party coalition, and and their coalition is gaining strength throughout the country. If you look at the election results, 
even in districts that went strongly for for the Democratic Congress or the Lesotho Congress of Democracy, uh, the ABC is gaining from from 2015 and from 2012. They're hmm. becoming a national party. Mm-hmm. They they started off as as an offshoot splinter party, basically based in Maseru, um, organizing textile workers, um, and they have have made it so that they are viable players in at least eight of the 10 districts of, of Lesotho these days. Um, the LCD and the DC still have a few mountain strongholds that the ABC hasn't penetrated, but they are they are in increasingly a, a national party. And with their coalition partners, the AD, the BNP, and the RCL, um, they have 63 seats right now out of 120 in the parliament, and they should pick up three more in the by-elections that have to happen because candidates passed away in three constituencies. Um, so I'm, I'm expecting the governing coalition to have 66 seats total out of 120. But that's that, a pretty narrow majority. Yes and no. Um, the, the way the proportional representation system is set up, um, no one is ever going to get a very big majority in, in Lesotho because it... The system heavily rewards those, again, who can cobble together a decent number of votes. Um, And so compared to the seven-party coalition that was most recently in power, the four-party coalition probably has a better chance of of sticking around for for longer amounts of time. A couple of reasons for that. First, three of the coalition partners, the ABC, the BNP, and the RCL, have a long-standing and harmonious relationship. They were part of the 2012 government, um, and they were not the part that split up. Mm. Uh, so the the real question is how well the new party, the the AD, led by uh, ex-minister Monyaki Malaleki, will get along with that coalition. Uh, both the relationship between Tabani and Malaleki, because they have been longtime adversaries on opposite sides of the political aisle, now coming together. Uh, but also the relationship between Mololeki and the smaller coalition partners. Um, you know, the, the question is whether Mololeki and, and his new party will will be able to stick around because they are they are right now the, the, the votes that are keeping the, the coalition over the, the 60, 61 plus margin there. So even as the election's over, it sounds like there's still a lot to pay attention to in national level politics in Lesotho. The final, the final election results were just announced on Tuesday. So the, the official coalition arrangement has, has not been announced yet. Um, but, but yes, the Lesotho politics are a, are a nonstop, uh, nonstop game to watch. Well, thank you, John, for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Kim. I appreciate you having me on. And uh, di como to the people of Lesotho, and good luck to the coalition government. Until next week, find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. We're at ufahamuafrica.com or on Twitter at ufahamuafrica. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by ALAC and by the Government Department. Rory Moomin, Smith College Class of 2020, is our research and production assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production at Smith College. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Our featured song this week is Basutu Kopanong, recorded by a group of some of Lesotho's top artists, including vocalist Melo who we spoke to on the phone this week. During that conversation, she said that Kopanong means to come together, and this diverse group of Basutu artists came together to encourage their compatriots to do the same during the elections, but also moving forward. Thanks, Melo, for sharing that sentiment with us, and thank you to the artists for making this beautiful and important recording. Thanks for listening. Until next week, 
Safiri Salama. Sabasoto, give me one day, I'm gonna 
take notes, I'm still 